Before we read the wisdom text, I would invite you to find your worship order, and if you would, turn to page two. See the section in the center of that page there where it says the service of the word. David Hett is the one who's writing our liturgy now, and he included this beautiful quote from Marcus Borg, a man who has spoken and preached in this very pulpit here on this campus. I want you to notice that he says that most often I ended my prayers with words from the gospel of Mark, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I'm going to be using that story, the story behind that saying, at the beginning of my sermon. I wanted to be sure you'd seen that was here in the bulletin, and I want you to reflect on that as we consider this word from the ancient psalmist. This is a difficult psalm. This is one of those, one of the very rare psalms that does not end with a word of trust at the end. But woven in among the complaints that you will hear is absolute trust in the willingness of this one to be honest and open before God. Hear these ancient words. Lord, God of my salvation, when at night I cry out in your presence, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help like those forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, they're cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions, my friends to shun me. You have made me a thing of horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call on you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or, or your saving help in the land of forgetfulness? But I, oh Lord, I cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Oh, Lord, why did you cast me off? Why did you hide your face from me? Wretched and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm desperate. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dread assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. From all sides, they close in on me. You've caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. A father with a son who is very ill comes to Jesus. The boy is apparently epileptic. The scripture reports that he was grinding his teeth, that he would sometimes become rigid or he would foam at the mouth. It sounds like he is suffering from, from epilepsy. In antiquity, they would have said he has a spirit, an evil spirit or a demon or something like that. They had no way to diagnose it or really to, uh, to treat something as terrible and as difficult as this. All the father really knows is that his son is in pain. He's desperate. He wants to see his son healed, renewed, given a chance to, to experience a, a normal kind of life. And so he comes to Jesus with this simple request. If you're able, Lord, if you're able. Jesus responds to that word saying, if I'm able, if I'm able. He seems to be talking to the crowd, not to the Father. 
Because then the father then says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I would dare say that most of the people I see in my office or in my ministry can identify with that very statement. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, now maybe, maybe, maybe you have a sunny faith, a bright, cheery one that's always glowing, and even when difficult things come along, your faith is never, never at all tested. Or maybe you're at the other extreme and you've completely given up on ever finding faith again. If that is true for, for you on either end of that spectrum, God bless you, please. But in my experience, most of us, most of the time are, are stuck there between belief and unbelief. In fact, I oftentimes find my time, myself at times wondering if God would come in and give me direct instructions. Just come into my office and write on the wall, here are your, the next five things you should do this week. Here are your next three sermon series for the next two years. Here's, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if you got some issue coming up in your family or at work, if, if God's hand would uh, mysteriously and miraculously appear on the wall and say, oh, this is from the Lord, or maybe get an email from God. However it works, whatever might work. But so far, so far in my life, that hasn't quite happened. And I, I expect that's true for most, most of us. In fact, this week while I was working on this sermon, I noticed that throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the way they tell their stories of Jesus, there are only two times that God even speaks to Jesus. And in both of those instances, it's not marching orders. It's not a, it's not a command to go and do this. It's not even really talking directly to Jesus. The voice from heaven says at his baptism, this is my child my beloved. And then at the transfiguration, the text that Deb Lindsay preached on last week, this is my child, the beloved. And that's it for Jesus. No, no, no order, no 180-day plan, no six-month uh, theory or, 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 or attempt to figure out what to do next in his ministry. No, none of that. Just that beautiful statement. This is my child. I love him. This is why I read the story, told the story that you, you heard today. Because here's this man in the very presence of Jesus, in the actual place of Jesus, not some stained glass image, not some theological idea, but the actual person, the flesh and blood Jesus. And even there in that moment with the one we name Lord and Savior, he experiences doubt, fear, anxiety, worry. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Mark is writing only 20 years after the time of Christ. And 20 years later, it's obvious that his congregation is struggling in the same way. I'm so glad it's in the gospel. Here we are 2,000 years later. And if you bring doubts, if you bring worry, if you bring fear, welcome to the community of faith. This is Mark's way of saying the same things that we're experiencing in our own lives were experienced by the very ones who were with Jesus. The psalm I just read a moment ago, as I said, is a harsh one, but it demonstrates a similar kind of faith. The poet is angry. The poet is frustrated. He's lost his friends. He feels like he's about to die. He feels like 
He's been completely abandoned by God, but he has enough trust in God. Hear this. He has enough trust in God in this poem, in Psalm 88, to be as honest as he possibly can. It's as though he's grabbing God by the lapels and saying, I'm not going to let go. Why have my friends abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why have you stuck me in Sheol? Sheol was an ancient image for the place of the dead, or hell we might say. Why have you left me there in that place? God, answer me, respond to me. There's an angry tone. There's a difficult word there. But woven in among all of the complaints and the requests is a faith that won't let go, that demands an audience from God. You've caused my companions to shun me, but oh Lord, I cry out to you. I'm amazed whenever I encounter open and honest faith. It's a reminder to us that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but actually a part of faith. A healthy faith embraces the questions, embraces the mystery, wonders out loud about what might be or what might have been or what is next in, in this world and in this life. This congregation has for over 100 years been the church of the eternal quest. We've been the congregation that's more than willing to allow the questions to remain unanswered even. Believing, hoping, trusting that somehow and in some way we'll find in the end the great truth of who God is and who we are as God's children. I'm amazed to encounter this, but sometimes I've, I've noticed that when the suffering is intense, when the suffering is real, doubts can overwhelm. Fear can take hold, lock down our hearts, control our minds, empty our souls, as it were, so sometimes we try to avoid suffering. Sometimes we think, I, I, just, I just don't want to face that suffering or think about it or, or talk about it. Usually during the season of Lent and especially during Holy Week as we get closer to Good Friday, I spend a lot of time contemplating the cross and the suffering that Jesus experienced there. I, in fact, I'll even hear, if I, if I bring this up in a sermon, someone will say to me, usually in a very good-natured way, you know, I appreciate the sermon on Jesus' suffering on the cross, but I'd really rather the sermons would focus more on Jesus' teaching and his preaching and his life and his love and the way he lived his life and the people that he surrounded himself with. And I, I think that's wonderful. I, that's, I, you might have noticed I love Jesus and I love the, the way he tells his stories and the way he teaches and preaches and the way it inspires us to live a faith that follows him. All of that, of course, but you have to remember it was those teachings those preaching, preachings, the people that he invited and surrounded himself with that got him in trouble with the powers that be. It was that very way of living and being in the world that caused those in the, who were guardians of the status quo to take his life. We may not want to face the suffering, but suffering is a part of life. In fact, Lewis Meads, who's a marvelous author, he wrote a book titled, How Can It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong? Don't you love that title? How Can It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong? He writes, most of us look at suffering and wonder why. Jesus tells us to look at suffering and wonder why not. He goes on to say, suffering oftentimes, most oftentimes, he says, comes when you make the right choice, when you make the right decision. To do that oftentimes creates an opportunity or a possibility for suffering to actually occur for us. 
He, he says, look at marriage. To, to understand this, look at marriage. Now, there's a joke there, I'm sure, by the way. But think about this. Marriage is a promise, is it not? To be there with the other no matter what happens. Although I, I do have to tell you this. It reminds me of something I saw on Facebook not too long ago. Maybe it was on Twitter, one, one of those two. A woman uh, posted a picture of a, of a little puppy that she'd surprised her husband with for his birthday, but found out a couple days later after she brought the dog home that, that uh, her husband was, was allergic. So she posted this photo and she said, because my husband's allergic, I'm gonna have to, to uh, give him up for adoption and I want you to know this. I, I want you to know that he's well-trained, has a job, and is 57 years old. <laughs> when, you made, when, you made, when you got married, you made a promise to suffer. Think about this. If you, if you recited with your spouse, your future spouse, maybe it was even here in this place, the traditional vows, you said, for better or for worse. You proclaimed it right there on the very day that you got married that suffering may and most likely will be a part of what it means to be married to each other. You made a promise that no matter what we go through in this life, I will stand there with you. It's a promise to share. I learned this lesson again in my own life. It's about four years ago. I had a nosebleed that wouldn't stop. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that? Don't raise your hand, but have you ever experienced that? It's not, it's not pleasant. It just... All, all morning, couldn't get a stop. Finally called Julie. She came home from work. She drove me to the emergency room. They did some things. It was less than pleasant. I'll just say that. And then they had to do a, a, little, a little operation. Not a major thing, nothing serious. But I said, Julie, she'd been there the whole time with me. I said, why don't you step out of the room, honey, okay? I didn't want her to see what they were going to do. So she stepped out. They did what they did. Hour later, I'm fine. The bleeding has stopped. Bring Julie back into the room. I think she's going to be smiling, and she comes walk up, she walks right up to me, and she says, do not do that to me ever again. I made a promise, for better, for worse. I'm your wife, and I'm going to stand by you no matter what you're facing. I will always be here. Trust me in that. I want you to trust in my love. To suffer sometimes is to experience the depth of humanity and faith itself. Sometimes, though, doubt comes not as a part of some kind of physical or emotional crisis, but, but more of an ex existential one. It's theologian Richard Rohr who says that we spend the first half of our lives building things. Some of you literally, I know we have real estate developers in our congregation, some of you literally build things, buildings, apartment complexes, condominiums, homes, that sort of thing. Others spend time building a career, a life, a family, a marriage, or you, build a, you actually build your own home. You do all that in the first part of your life, and there's nothing wrong with this. We need in order to build these kinds of things so that we can survive, have a place to live, put food on the table, send our children to school, all of that. But sometimes we get stuck thinking, especially in that first half, is this who I am? We think we're defined by what we do. The CEO or the salesperson or the school teacher or the attorney or the judge or the, the guy who sells beer at the hockey games, they, they start to think, is this, is this who I am? Is this, is this how I am in life? Too many of us are defined, we think, by our doing when rather we're invited to be defined by our being. Because when we're defined by our doing, that makes the door wide open for doubt. Not the, not the doubt that just questions, but the doubt that shuts us down. A friend of mine came to see me a few years ago. 
He's an executive for a printing company. He's the vice president who oversees the calendar division. Do you remember when we used to have calendars? Now, now we carry them in our, in our pocket in a, in a little phone. I've got my whole calendar, my whole life right, right, right here. Back, back in the day, this is about 10 or 15 years ago, he was still selling calendars, and he's very successful. He's 55 years old, a wife, a new grandbaby was on the way, but he called me up and said, I need to talk. I need to talk now. Sat down. He said, I had a nightmare last night. I dreamed I died. And I was standing outside my grave, looking at the tombstone. And all it said was, he sold calendars. There were tears in his eyes. He said, Glenn, I'm 55. Is that, is that my life? Is that who I am? I'm just a guy who sold calendars? I said, oh, oh Brian, in, in no way. No way is that who you are. I know you as a servant of the church. You've been on the governing board. You've been a deacon. You've been somebody who's, who's gone on mission trips. You care for your neighbors in an amazing, wonderful way. I've seen how you love your wife and your kids, and I, I can't wait to welcome this new grandbaby with you when that, that grandchild is born soon because you're going to be an amazing grandfather. That's how you're defined. That's who you are. You're not the guy who sells calendars. You're the guy who loves his family and his wife and his neighbors and loves his God. There could be nothing finer than that. I fully believe that moments like that, when, when, we, have a, when we have a dream or a nightmare or, or some other experience that, that, that comes along the way, it's like the Spirit is nudging us to pay attention. Maybe it's, maybe it's your own heart, mind, and soul speaking to yourself to wake up, to pay attention, to see your life for who you truly are. These are God moments nudges from the Spirit. There's another kind of doubt, though, that comes. It's when the darkness seems to be so intense. There's no going around it. It's the darkness of death, the shadow of the valley, as we say, when it's right before us and coming it can be overwhelming. Tony Campolo, the great Baptist preacher, was visiting a church in Oregon where he was, where he was invited to give the sermon. Towards the end of the sermon, he was in the pulpit and he looked down and he saw that there was a little vial of oil, just a little vial of oil, and he remembered in that moment that in that congregation, in their tradition, Part of what they did was at the end of the service, they would invite anyone who wants to experience healing to come down to, the, to, to be prayed for, for healing, to come down the center aisle and, and the pastor would put the mark of the cross with the oil on their forehead and then offer a prayer. Now, now Tony's a Baptist and they, this, they don't do oil and healing prayers and that sort of thing, but he just felt, again, like I was saying, sort of this nudge, you ought, to, you ought to do this. It's part of their tradition, participate in it. And so he said at the end of his sermon, if there's anyone who'd like to receive a prayer for healing and an anointing, come down to the front and I'll, I'll be there with you. 30 people came forward. Tony said it was one of the most powerful experiences of his life to get out of his own comfort zone and to step into that tradition and that practice and pray. He prayed for every single one of the persons who came forward for whatever their need might have been. Three weeks later, he got a phone call from a woman who said, thank you for praying for my husband. He was suffering with cancer. He died yesterday, but I wanted you to know that your prayer meant a lot to us. Tony immediately said, I, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that the healing didn't take place. I apologize. Please, please. And she interrupted him and said, no, 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 no. 
Don't apologize. Now, let me tell you the, the, my story. You see, we were, we were married for 31 years. For most of those 31 years, he was an angry, overwhelmingly difficult man to live with. He ran his business and his life and his family and, and our marriage with anger and frustration and fear constantly. And then when the cancer came, it was worse. No one could stand to be around him. He became a horrible human being. But on that night, when you invited us to pray, he stood and he went down the aisle. I went with him. You prayed for him. You anointed him with the oil. Something happened. She said, I, I don't know what happened, but something happened. He changed overnight. The next day we got up and he asked if we could pray together and we prayed together. We had a conversation all day long that was unbelievable about life and love and what matters the most. We sang, we sang, she said, for God's sake, we sang hymns at the end of the day and we enjoyed wonderful meals and, and he died after two and a half weeks. She said, but, but Pastor Tony, if I had to choose between the first 31 years or the last two and a half weeks, I'd choose those two and a half weeks every single time. He wasn't cured of his disease, but he was healed. Walking face first into the darkness of doubt is an invitation to face what for many of us is the most difficult reflection to see, that of our own face and all that we bring to life. But in that revelation is the promise that there is a candle burning, a single candle burning in the darkness where there will be more than enough light for us to move forward in faith. Amen.